Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. So before there was even a term called human trafficking, uh, I was actually trafficked by immediate and some extended family members from ages six months to 17 years old. You know, the, the, the torture, the pain, the things that were going on were so great that I thought, I'd rather be dead. I think I'd rather just be in the ground and be at peace. So at age five, that was my first attempt at suicide. I just wanted to be gone. And that's uh, where God met me actually in my life was on that curb. And I heard this voice in my heart say, this is not the plan I have for you. Suicide is not the answer. And I believed that voice. I looked into this huge blue sky and I thought, well, if somebody can make this big sky, maybe they could be bigger than the people hurting me. And I, I just said, I'll do whatever you call me to do if you keep me alive. And he did. And today she's sharing her story in hopes of helping other victims of sex trafficking. We're joined today by Andy Berger. She's the founder and chair of Voices Against Trafficking. She's going to share her tragic story with us today, how she survived and how she is helping others get through a difficult situation. We're joined today by Andy Berger. She's the founder and chair of Voices Against Trafficking. Tell us a little bit about Voices Against Trafficking and how this all started. Well, Voices Against Trafficking came out of a mustard seed kind of called Beulah's Place, which was our shelter. And we had that for 14 years rescuing kids. And one of those God nudges in the middle of the night uh, got me thinking that we needed more voices collectively in order to help turn the tide against predators and the fight against human trafficking. And so uh, once that came to mind, I established Voices Against Trafficking as a, a network of networks. So we're like a hub in a wheel, excuse me, and and that wheel gets stronger and stronger the more spokes we put in it, whether it's an individual, a corporation, another nonprofit. So the strength of many voices speaking as one helps us do more in terms of legislation, uh, prevention of trafficking and sexual exploitation, um, creating greater awareness around the world. And so that's how it came about. And we also produced a book this year to add as another tool to help create conversations. A lot of people just don't know how to talk about human trafficking. Mm -hmm. It's not really table conversation. So we wanted to give them as many tools as possible to use. And every quarter we also produce an international forum that's free to everyone around the world on Facebook and YouTube. And we have one coming up actually at the end of June on June 29th. And we bring many voices together to share different perspectives, ideas, solutions, challenges in this area. Now, this is a very personal topic for you, something that has affected your own life. Can you share a little bit about your own story and your own experience? Absolutely. So before there was even a term called human trafficking, uh, I was actually trafficked by immediate and some extended family members from ages six months to 17 years old. And that that was back in the early 60s and 70s. So they didn't really even talk about child abuse back then, let alone something organized like trafficking. But, you know, the, the, the torture, the pain, the things that were going on were so great that I thought, I'd rather be dead. I think I'd rather just be in the ground and be at peace. So at age five, that was my first attempt at suicide. Wow. 
I just wanted to be gone. And that's uh, where God met me, actually, in my life was on that curb. And I heard this voice in my heart say, this is not the plan I have for you. Suicide is not the answer. And I believed that voice. I looked into this huge blue sky and I thought, well, if somebody can make this big sky, maybe they could be bigger than the people hurting me. And I, I just said, I'll do whatever you call me to do if you keep me alive. And he did. And he has. And the last time my birth mother tried to kill me, I was 17. So it was a rough ride. But here I am six decades later. What what amazes me is you said at five, you know, God came to you and you're like, hey, if you want me to be alive, help me stay alive. You still endured all yes. of this trauma for 12 more years. How did that affect your relationship with God over those years? Well, I think it was kind of a primal and and a very childlike faith. I would always pray, even though I don't think I knew it was praying at the time, but Mm -hmm. I would just talk to this God I hadn't met, I couldn't see. And and I think in some way, I, I just felt like there was some power you know, that would help me at some point get out of that mess and out of that that hurt. But it was a very childlike faith. I had an intellectual uh, blind faith belief, not an experiential one, which came much later in my life. So it was, it was, if I live, I win. And if I die, the evil people win. So very primal survival instinct. So after those 17 years mm-hmm. of dealing with that, how did you move forward and how did you get to a place where now you're able to help others? Well, I went to college and I think that's where I first started to see how other people lived because I didn't know anything different than the evil I had experienced. And so it wasn't like it happened one time in my life. So it was constant. So when I I began trying to figure out who I was, I didn't really have a lot of skills. I was mentally ahead, but emotionally behind, very naive. So like dating and things like that, I was was kind of klutzy about Mm -hmm. it. But I learned and I just kept pursuing a goal so that I could feel like I succeeded. And as I did that, I learned from other professionals or teachers or people around me. I was a great people watcher. So I watched how other people behaved, how they communicated. And as I continued to pray and I would go to uh, young adult groups, things like that, I picked up stuff. But I think it really turned around uh, after law school where I finally had done all the education I could do. And I wanted to do something for kids that were like me that had had either been abandoned, been abused, been hurt so terribly. And I knew because I remembered God saying he had a plan for me. So I kind of called him out on that. I'm like, okay, what do you want me to do? (laughs) Even though I still didn't really have that that experience. And fast forward uh, uh, quite a few years, I was invited to a church service and a little chapel. And that speaker just absolutely broke my heart, which is what God intended her to do for two hours. I just cried and and she came and sat next to me at the end of the service. And she didn't say a word. She just put her arms around me and rocked me like a mother would rock a child. And I had never experienced that comfort or that kind of love. So that's exactly where I began experiencing compassion and love from God was in that moment in my early 30s. And then my faith really began to flourish because I could feel it. And then what happened from there? Tell us a little bit about your experience after that and feeling all of that. What did you do from there? 
Well, from there, I, I was in a, an abusive marriage, which, you know, shocker, given my background, but, you know, worship leader who is not not really who he said he was. And so I went through a divorce. And in that time after the divorce, God really became the provider, the counselor. It was just the two of us again, but in a different way. Uh, I was supporting myself. And through that, through going to different churches, I began really uh, believing and understanding all the promises he had made. And I started applying that. And then fast forward a couple more years where he brought, you know, the most amazing human I've ever met into my life. And we've been married 22 years this month. <laughs> Congratulations. So, thank you. <laughs> so I had a tangible physical person in my life that had no agenda, that just wanted to love me as I was. And that was a huge experience for me to have somebody like that in my life. And in doing that, he and I decided we need to help these kids that we see on the streets. How can we do that? What can we do? And the people kind of had this or the culture was, well, if they have piercings and they've got cigarettes in their mouths or they got tattoos, they must be rebellious teenagers, you know, <laughs> and that's not really true. I'm sure some kids are that way, but the ones we were looking at took to the streets because they felt it was safer than what they were running from. And we and so we just started rescuing them. We started uh, either bringing them to our home or finding a safe house system that they could live there for three to five months while we worked with them. They had to finish high school. They had to get a job and they had to maintain that job in order for us to continue giving them services. And they would sign a contract. So everybody was on the same page um, and it worked really well. We had like a 92 percent success rate over 14 years. Wow. That's yeah, amazing. no one got paid. <laughs> it was all volunteer driven. And uh, then COVID and funding and other things happened. And so we had to close the shelter. But we we ended up taking in over 300 kids and housing 50 of them and then sending eight to college, actually. Wow. So it's absolutely amazing. In those 14 years, the work that was accomplished. What is it like to be on the other side and to see that accomplishment, to see that success out of these kids that have experienced trauma like many of us have never experienced? Yes. Well, and all the kids we rescued just uh, so the audiences know they were all sexually abused. They were all physically abused. So these kids were we were their last chance to intercede and and to help create a, a different culture for them. But it was great. Every time one of our kids would say, hey, I got a job or I'm going on a date or, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to go to college and I need help. And anything that was positive, we made sure we celebrated even the smallest, seemingly insignificant event in their life so that they could have all those deposits to start filling in all those voids kind of like school did for me you know education and music filled a lot of voids for me as i was growing and we do uh, talk to them about anything they want to talk about our first uh, basically our first mission was to love without judgment the way god loves us you know and after that, create a plan to fit their need. So to see many of them start their own families, to see their generations changed because, you know, God inspired our hearts to just do something that was simple in the beginning, you know, to us. Let's just help them. Uh, it's a great it's a great joy. And my husband and I actually ended up uh, adopting one of the girls we rescued officially two years ago. Wow, so this is a passion project for you. Like, this is something that yes. will never end. 
That's right, because it, there will always be somebody out there we're looking for, someone that needs to be rescued. There's a lot of hurt going on in the world, and unfortunately, uh, young people are very vulnerable to predators and to the things that they do all around the world. Why are we so afraid as Christians or as the church to discuss this and, and to be on top of this? I know it's 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 getting out there and it's more and more and more in the spotlight. But why is this such a, you know, let's not talk about that. This is taboo. Like, let's not discuss this. I think because it's such a brutal topic, when you think about uh, that, the fact that one trafficking victim, for example, can be sold 20 to 25 times in one one day. When you think about the very short lifespan or the fact that we don't, maybe don't want to accept that we abuse our children. We have five kids a day just in the U.S., let alone in other countries that died just from child abuse. So it's a horrific problem, and I'm not sure that the churches are prepared. And so one of the things Voices does, we have speakers from all over the world that are willing to talk virtually in person to help break the ice without terrifying the congregations, you know, like Mm -hmm. I do, to bring a hope that says, look, if I can make it, if God did this for me, he can do that for others. And I I think, to be brutally honest, This happens in churches, too. So it's kind of that sticky wicket topic. And I think if pastors, priests, other people that lead churches and lead fellowships would just be open to having a speaker come in and break the ice, it would be really, really helpful because we have a world of walking wounded out there that have been hurt. And God did not, you know, have have his son die so that we could be bound up and enslaved by that hurt. He wants us to be free. He's our heavenly father. He's our heavenly daddy. Where do we start? If if people are not feeling safe in the church, where do we start? Exactly. And also embracing those who have been hurt. I had a lady I spoke uh, at a women's group, a women's retreat a few years back, and she came up to me. She was 75. She had been violated in the back of a church at the age of five. She now had great grandchildren. She lived her whole life with that secret. I was the first person she shared that with. 75 years old, she lived with that. So this is something that's been a problem for years. Yes. Yes. It didn't just start yesterday and trafficking didn't just start in America. You know, ever since the world was created, there's been some kind of trade for labor or sex, you know, for human beings. And it it goes culturally way, way back. And so one of our goals is to let people know that there are things you can do right now today, every day to help us stop this or to help us turn the tide so that the predators don't have free reign, so that your kids are safe, your nieces, your nephews, that whole thing. And if you if you partner with us or support us in terms of going to our website, VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com, has tips and helplines and hotlines. And, and whether you're in a different country or not, you can still get good information. You can still get, you know, on our live forums and you can still email us and say, hey, what about this? How now, can I this? What would you say is the biggest tip or the biggest red flag to know if someone is potentially being trafficked? And as a parent, um, you may be unaware of what's going on in, in a child's life or vice versa. As a child, you don't know what's going on. I think one of the, let's let's go with the tangible. So I know I never gave adults 
eye contact, especially when I was with one of my abuser predators and they were family members, which is called familial trafficking. But in general, if you see a young person, maybe with an older person and their body language is stiff or confined or they're not looking up or they don't talk to you or they're not talking to anybody, there's something odd. Usually your gut instinct is is pretty good uh, measure of that. Or maybe you see a young girl who's dressed uh, way above her age bracket, so to speak, in, in a way that wouldn't be normal for a 10-year-old, for for example. So you want to look at body language. You want to look at um, who they're with and, and how closely controlled they might seem to be. Uh, the other part of it, too, if some of these kids can run, they try to, but uh, I would I would look at that. The other part of it, too, maybe in your your neighborhood, there's a kid that's always at your house or that always seems to be on the street or doing things doesn't go home or doesn't want to go home they want to stay maybe with your child uh, overnight or is constantly doing that is there a behavior change look at the behavior changes in the kids that your kids hang out with and see if there's something that has changed uh, for some unknown obvious reason behavior will tell you a lot about what's going on if it's child abuse if it's you know maybe something more of a sexual nature uh, if, if there's bullying going on but again all of us as adults whether we're parents or not of young children of college students we have to help our communities watch and be aware of what's happening to the kids in our immediate circle as well as our family circle and then for a real quick tip if you have kids or you're in charge of kids in any capacity uh, as a family member, create a special safe word. Um, you know, maybe it's, mm -hmm. it's the name of something so that when your child texts that or your college student or your high school student texts you that word or that phrase, you know immediately they're in trouble or they perceive that they're in trouble and they need you or someone to help right away. One thing about human trafficking and sex trafficking we always forget is and you've mentioned it over and over and over again it happens in our own backyard yeah. like people quite often think it's something that's happening in a third world country but it's happening it could be happening next door it could be happening you know to someone you know it's something Absolutely. that can happen anywhere and the predators don't look like the ones we see in movies I mean some of them might the swarthy you know grubby type but, <laughs> but the, the average predator anywhere in the world is going to look like uh, maybe your dentist or a librarian or a business person. I mean, look at Julie Maxwell. She was very well dressed. She had nice shoes. She had the good hair. She had the, you know, the nails done. She looked like a successful woman. And how many young girls saw that and said, oh, I want what she has. I want to be like her. And then the, 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 the groomers have that opening because now they have someone who wants to be like them without really knowing what they're like and what's behind that false front. With Voices Against Trafficking, you've mentioned it a few times, but what is your overall hope and your overall goal? Our overall hope is that we can at least turn the tide. We can create enough awareness where we save even one, you know, more victim from going through what is a life sentence. One uh, sexual violation is a life sentence and imagine multiple violations happening. So uh, we want to do that. And our goal right now by the end of summer 2023 is to have a million names worldwide on our roster by going to VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com and just uh, the tab that says add your voice. 
be part of the solution. We want a million names because that carries leverage, that carries weight in communities and with legislators all over the world and the people that we work with. Um, so we want to have that roster of people saying, look, I may not have money or a lot of time, but I can at least add my voice and say, yes, I'm against human trafficking. I want to be part of the solution. And here you go. So that's one of our short-term goals. With uh, Voices, if anyone wants to learn, you obviously mentioned the website just there. You also mentioned there is a book that is available as a resource as well. Tell us a little bit more if we want to learn more. We want to learn more about you and your story, how we can go about doing that. Absolutely. Well, the book from Voices Against Trafficking, we're hoping to bring out a new edition every year. Uh, Voices Against Trafficking, the strength of many voices speaking as one is available through our website or Amazon.com. There are uh, 20 authors, 20 chapters, and each chapter, like if you're traveling, what to do or how to how to check your children's gaming habits, things like that. We also have media perspectives. So we took top voices and they're all sharing a piece of information or, or something that can be helpful to creating a conversation maybe in your school or at your church or at your office, that type of thing. The other book, the first book I wrote uh, with a writer was A Fragile Thread of Hope, which does have more of my story and four of the stories of kids we rescued on the street and where they're at now. Uh, One was trafficked. The other three teens came from other backgrounds, and it was a way to help general public understand who these kids are on the street no matter what neighborhood what country they're in why they're on the street and uh, fragile thread of hope one survivor's quest to rescue is also on amazon.com and uh, 45 percent of the proceeds of those books go to victims of child trafficking and sexual exploitation do you ever plan to stop helping Probably not. (laughs) I don't think I can. I mean, this is just, there's always one more. We're always pushing for one more. So as long as God gives me breath, I'll do whatever I can to help someone. You're an amazing woman. Thank you so much for making time for us. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. It's been an honor. And thank you so much for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.